Who are you now, and who did you used to be? On this Selected Shorts, Changing Bodies and Altered Lives, I'm your host, Meg Wallitzer. Stay with me. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Our sense of self is shaped by lots of different forces, our age, our moods, our bodies, our relationships. We're never just one thing. We're always transitioning into the next version of ourselves. I think sometimes we force that transition a little. When I went to college, I dressed in collegiate outfits from women's magazines. For years, I'd been wearing corduroys and Dr. Scholl's, and suddenly I was in a skirt with one of those giant weird safety pins in it. Later, when I decided to be a writer, I actually bought a beret. The three stories on this program explore the phenomenon of a changing self from a variety of perspectives. In the first, curious but clueless young men explore the boundaries of love and friendship. In the second, a trans woman explores her life before and after the change. And in the third, a divorced couple probe the sore tooth of their marriage with surprisingly funny results, for us if not for them. Yolchin Tosun's Muzafish and Bananas is a tender, unconventional, and unexpected coming-of-age story. Two teens on the awkward cusp of manhood test ideas of friendship and love, and they have only an ancient chimpanzee as a model. The story comes to us courtesy of Words Without Borders, and its translator, Abby Comstock-Gay, commented on their website about the power of Tosun's work to capture youth awash all at once in anticipation, hope, crushing loneliness, and confusion. Turkish-born Tosun is an award-winning author whose collections include Sad Like a Wig. Reader Aryan Moyad is an actor and director whose work includes his Tony-nominated performance in Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo. He's also known for the television series Succession and Inventing Anna. And he's a founder of the theater company Waterwell. Mozofish and Bananas. Cutting last period was my idea, but getting on a crowded city bus and going to the zoo on this hot day was Ali's. He wanted to see the old chimpanzee at the zoo, whom he'd felt an affinity with for some time. Whenever he couldn't take his uh, workaholic father and cubist paint his mother anymore, he came here to have heart-to-hearts with the old chimpanzee. He liked his calm and devil-may-care attitude. (laughs) He had first introduced me to Mozafesh when we went to the zoo a few weeks earlier. Yes, the chimpanzee's name was Mozafesh, or at least that was the name that Ali thought fit him best. Nearly toothless, with most of the hair on his body ripped out, this chimp had the most melancholic eyes in the world. Not caring at all that we were there, he gazed around motionless from the back corner of his unkempt cage, having detached himself from all relations with the world. When we got on the bus, we raced towards the empty seats next to the ticket collector, and as difficult as it was, squeezed in beside each other. We were both quite fat, but Ali's body carried more promise than mine. He was about four inches taller than me and had nice broad shoulders. I'm not even gonna mention how his beard had already started coming in. These characteristics didn't make his ass smaller than mine though. The moment we got on, the people on the bus started looking us up and down with those expressions of disgust. They probably reserved, especially for fat teenagers. Oh, those looks. If only I, like Ali, could succeed in not noticing them or looking like I didn't. When the bus had picked up the other passengers and began moving, I just started looking around. Ali was lost in thought, but I wanted to make sure that he had noticed that this girl was standing a bit in front of us. I nudged his leg with mine. He didn't notice. The girl wasn't even that pretty anyway. That nudge was one of those things I felt I had to do to pay dues to adolescence. And if I hadn't, I would have felt like I was lacking something. But Ali didn't feel the same way. Facing out the window, murmuring something or another. Let's get some bananas for Mozart Fish. 
I couldn't help giggling. I put my hand over my mouth to make sure that my crooked teeth didn't show. Mosaw fish and bananas, it was just funny. Those kind of things were always funny for me back then. When I noticed that Ali wasn't laughing, I wanted to say something. Well, I don't have any money. I do. Yes, he always had more money than I did, but unlike other kids who had money, he never used to show it off. It had almost become the norm for him to pay the bills when we went somewhere. I can't say that I, I was ever uncomfortable about it. Even if I had been, I wouldn't have let anything come between me and my only friend in the world. The not very pretty girl, who nevertheless succeeded in getting my attention, had moved a few steps forward, so she was standing right next to me. Her bag was bumping against my shoulder, and I was reveling in this. I lifted my head a bit and looked at her face at the corner of my eye. She had to be three or four years older than us, but she looked around as if she knew a lot about life. I wondered if she had ever kissed anyone. And if she had, I wondered how she kissed. I had seen a lot of kissing in movies. Some people just suck on the other person's upper or lower lip. Other people stick their tongues out audaciously with brazen speed. I would kiss politely, I told myself. And I approved of this thought with a nod of my head. I would neither boorishly suck lips, nor would I use my tongue. I would plant a kiss on those timid lips gently, like, like brushing the naked skin of a bird's wing. But I only had lips in my mind. Not a face, not a body, not a person, just, just lips. <laughs> The girl opened her bag like she was going to get something out of it. Then without getting anything, she closed it again. Oh, women and their mysterious actions. <laughs> I looked at her out of the corner of my eye again as if to show that I noticed, but she didn't see me. When we got off the bus, something Ali had said about women came to my mind. The other day in the locker room, we both heard the other kids saying what they wanted to do with Miss Isla, the gym teacher. Slowly walking away afterward, I stopped and I asked him, do you like Miss Isla? And he looked me in the face with a flirtatious look. Dude, he sometimes called me dude. Dude, you don't understand women at all. I would make a bet that that woman is as cold as the poles. I bet when she has sex, she passes the time by imagining what kind of animals the stains on the ceilings look like. I wasn't sure if he really knew more about women than me or not, but he liked it to look that way, so I just believed him. Yet I was sure that we both had the same doubts which we have never shared with each other, about the unlikelihood of our fat bodies ever appealing to anyone. Not saying these things out loud was one of the secret agreements between us. Then the topic of kissing came up, and he told me a few things about the ins and outs of kissing. According to him, kissing must be done with eyes closed, and teeth, and he looked away from me when he said this, had to be particularly well cared for at all times because it is never clear when a person might want to have the chance to kiss. And also, if I ever gotten the chance to kiss a girl I'm into, like a friend on the cheek, I should plant my kiss on the borderline between the lips and the cheek. The girl would understand from that how much I liked her. How do you know these things? <laughs> I would know, dude. Yes, he said dude again. Have you ever kissed anyone? He gave another suggestive laugh and silently walked towards the greengrocer. 
where the colorful fruits were aligned in rows. We put the bananas in Ali's bag. When we got to the zoo, the security guard at the door reminded us that feeding the animals was strictly forbidden because we knew this rule was not enforced. We didn't say anything. <laughs> we walked slowly in the heat, escorted by the strange smell emanating from our fat bodies. In many of the corners of the zoo, there were couples interested more in each other than the animals, and our looks gravitated toward the couples and not the animals. As we approached Mozafesh's cage and looked around for the security guard, we pulled the bananas out of the bag. There were four bananas. Ali gave two of them to me. We were excited about seeing Mozafesh, but he wasn't there. As we were wondering if he had changed his cage, we learned that he had died the night before. Actually, he had committed suicide. The security guard, who looked indifferent at the forgotten bananas in our hands, didn't use the word suicide, but that was the conclusion Ali came up with after hearing what the man told us. The night before, Mozafesh had gotten himself into a run-in with the roughest young chip and gotten himself killed because he couldn't stand his baldness, his toothlessness, his, his painful joints. He had committed a sort of suicide as an honorable old chimpanzee would. As Ali translated these thoughts to me, he didn't show the slightest sign of sadness, but I knew that Mozafesh was the only creature in the world that I envied, and I knew how much Ali loved him. He had told me even more about him than he had told me about his mother and father. I mean, I didn't know what to say. I peeled one of the bananas in my hands and started to eat it. <laughs> I didn't have the chance to eat a banana often, and at the, that moment, I couldn't think of anything better to do. <laughs> Ali then came over and took the other banana, and he threw it toward the cage. Then he did the same thing with the ones that he was holding. And I just, I stood there with a half-eaten banana in my hand. And in that moment, I understood just how sad my friend was. While Mozafesh lay prostrate in his grave, I assumed that chimpanzees are buried just like dead people, Ali's fat body shook as he began to cry. It was the first time I'd seen another boy crying. I put down my half-eaten banana and went over to him, and I put my arm on his shoulder. Get away from me, dude, he said. Without taking my arm off his shoulder, I said that maybe there was a heaven for chimpanzees and that he shouldn't be sad. I regretted it the moment I said it. Just what idiocy. <laughs> he looked into my eyes and he put his arm on my shoulder, and we stood there face to face, arms on each other's shoulders. He was still crying, heavy sobs. We were two fat teenagers facing each other on the grass in front of the cage. Mozafesh had died, and these two teenagers so often prayed the same thing would happen to them. Ali, I said, you haven't ever kissed anyone, have you? He remained motionless. He was trying to stop crying. With my hand, I held his chin, and I lifted his face, and I placed a kiss on the borderline between his lip and his cheek, and I ran away as fast as my heavy body could would carry me. Aryan Moyed performed Muzafish and Bananas by Yalchin Tosun, translated by Abby Comstock Gay. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Did you hear the catch in his voice at the end? As if that sudden surge of unmanageable emotion caught him by surprise, too. The misery and self-consciousness of being a teenager are all in here, 
But the resourcefulness is too, as well as the power of being seen by someone else, and the fact that that person likes what he sees and isn't about to look away anytime soon. Our second story about transformation and identity is Take Pills and Wait for Hips by Anya De Niro. A trans woman charts her physical transition through moments of awareness and loss. This provocative story raises the question, can you alter an unhappy past by choosing a radically different future? De Niro writes speculative fiction and is published in Asimov's One Story and Strange Horizons. Our reader is the actor Puya Moseni, who's appeared on Law & Order SVU and Madam Secretary. Films include See You Then and Heather. Here she is with Take Pills and Wait for Hips. Take Pills and Wait for Hips. When you were 13, your Boy Scout troop took a field trip to Florida in an orange bus full of pork rind bags and off-brand pop cans and sleeping bags. Besides Space Mountain, what you loved most on the trip was one of the famous lagoons with the crystalline water and the glass-bottom boats. Your fears and anxieties, which were not merely from homesickness you soon realized, but from an abyss inside of you that you never had the worst for, ameliorated for a few minutes on that glass-bottom boat. You saw far past what you thought were the limits of water, given that the church you grew up with was always murky, any shipwrecks or ruins below the surface unknowable. You got down on your hands and knees on the boat, getting your Boy Scout regulation khakis wet. And you peered down as if your eyes were telescopes while everyone around you punched each other and didn't pay attention to anything. But you were paying attention to the bottom of the lagoon. There were fish down there, of course, prismatic thinned, darting and swimming right underneath the boat. And you felt yourself to be swimming too. Down there were also cars, really old cars. From a time when people used to drive cars into pristine lagoons and just walk away. <laughs> when people, no, men used to leave their families behind and start new lives in new towns without a word or postcard. You didn't know the names of the cars, maybe Studebakers. Then the other Boy Scouts in your troop started laughing at you and calling you a Oh my God, would you look at this fucking crybaby? 30 years later, the deep slowness of a pencil skirt writes your new name. Your half-revealed legs have all these boy scars that you're self-conscious about, all the nicks from mosquito bites on your shin that you scratch mercilessly when you were camping with your son a few years ago, a little father and son bonding time. But even then, he knew your heart wasn't quite in it. It was not parenting that was the problem, but the whole orchestration of camping out in a thicket of mosquitoes, pitching a lopsided tent, eating granola bars for dinner since you left the hot dogs at home. You did an awful job at pretending to be a man. You wanted to spare him from cruelty more than anything. You wanted to spare him. You constantly scanned your son's face for disappointment, but if he had any, he hid it well, which shouldn't have been anything a nine-year-old had to worry about, you reasoned. Only after the loss of your son in the divorce, of custody, of everyday contact, has the pain really dawned on you and makes you realize that your parenting could have been better more resolute, you could have been more honest with him because you love him. You love him. You love him. You are not a broken canvas. When you pass men on the street in your pencil skirt, sometimes they comment on the scars on your legs as if you're not there. There are selfies you took that morning in the skirt, making sure you're at the right angle, arm outstretched, natural smile, not too forced, that you send to men who want the pictures, if not you. 
They rarely come to much. Capture yourself over and over. Have to find the right cadence. Photos one to five, light not right. Six, readjust. Is that a beard shadow along the jawline? Hmm. Seven to ten, try without glasses. Messages in bottles, your skirt and your smile bounced off satellites and into another phone and deleted. You vow that every one of your memories will have at least one sliver of emancipation that you'll place inside of it, yet it feels indulgent, as if you have limited qualities of emancipation tucked inside that knockoff purse on your shoulder. A comforting weight stitched together with the same machines in the same factories as the non-knockoff. The purse holds your concealer and your pill cutter. Life and death pharmacology flows through your body. The estrogen patch on your stomach muscle alternates left and right twice a week, allows you enough to be aware of love and or its absence. Adjacent to your belly button, it looks like an interface panel that could be unscrewed open. Some people have thought during your transition that you're the knockoff. An off-brand woman, dents and scratches, all sales final. Coming out as a trans woman has allowed you to consider time differently than you had before, which was a big surprise at the beginning. Nobody told you that would happen. In the mirror, when you study the minute changes in your body, time slows. You try to force grace to inhabit you. Every day, you are one day closer to death. And yet, each day you transition, you become more fully who you are, cell by cell, your cells would be changing anyway, but now they change with a purpose that becomes intimately known to you. Now you take pills and wait for hips. Your changes are betting against time and how you will live before you are late to rest when all the hormones in your body will dry up just as they will in every other human being. If you never had come out, you would have to pretend you were not changing at all, except in the acquisition of stupid hobbies that didn't interest you but kept you distracted unsuccessfully from the ashen necromancy of your unhappy days. You and your son camp along the shore of the lagoon. You are fully yourself, a woman, and the mosquitoes are no more than glass insects. They try to bite you, but they can't break your skin. You and your son laugh and gently wave them off. The glass bottom boat is in the middle of the lagoon. You and your son decide to walk to it. The dusk is quiet. Your son takes your hand. You think he's being serious and sad. But then he skips ahead, pulling you forward and laughing. You laugh too as you walk on the surface of the lagoon. There are boulders of grief flying off your shoulders. When you reach the glass-bottom boat, you realize it's empty. No Boy Scouts, no other passengers. The boat is an ice sculpture on the glass surface of the lake. Your son hoots and climbs in. You look down through the glass-bottom at the Studebakers. They're still there, where they were abandoned. You wonder whether you'll tell him about what happened here. Puya Moseni performed Take Pills and Wait for Hips by Anya De Niro. I love the way the story remains the same while being reshaped by memory and a new self. Experiences are etched into us again and again. By the time we grow up, we're basically one big woodcut. In this story, the second-person voice, the you, allows for a little distance, but only a little. That old glass-bottomed boat is like a pair of spectacles, and at long last, everything will be revealed. When we return, a street corner named Divorce, 
I'm Meg Wallitzer. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Our first two stories involve change. You may be perfectly happy just as you are, but if you miss them, you'll find this show and many others on our website, selectedshorts.org. There, the subscribe to podcast button will provide links for Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. And please, if you like the show, share Selected Shorts with your friends and followers and write us a review so we'll know what to keep and what to change. The stories on this show examine change, identity, and memory. Our final work is by A.M. Holmes. She's one of our favorite authors whose bold and unpredictable work spans many volumes, including Days of Awe, May We Be Forgiven, and The Unfolding. Goodbye to the Road Not Taken is a deliciously rueful comedy of bad manners barely held in check. A divorced couple meet on the street. She's passing on his mail, and in the course of this brief encounter, They rehearse the entire history of their failed marriage. It feels like a meet-cute movie, but without the happy ending. And Holmes has deftly positioned us, the audience, on the street with them. The old friends who read this, Jane Kaczmarek and Tony Shalhoub, probably had to work a bit to rise to the level of the text's biting animosity. On television, she's best known for Malcolm in the Middle, and he starred in Monk and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Kaczmarek's stage work includes Long Day's Journey Into Night, and Shalhoub won a Tony for The Band's Visit. Goodbye to the Road Not Taken was a commission for our small Odysseys anthology and read during a marathon performance of all the stories in the book. The actors made some small changes to the text to bring it to life. Why mine is bigger than his? I do. Meet me by the Fisher King. Where? Near the deli that closed. It's near the place we used to go. The first place or the second place? It depends on how you define it. What will you be wearing? It's not that kind of a meeting. If you're not on one corner, you'll be on the other. Even even from across the street, I'll see you. It's not like I don't know who you are. I'll have an umbrella. These days, I always have an umbrella. I like to be prepared, and I've discovered it has many uses, almost like one of those utility tools, like a pocket knife. Two days pass. So, here we are. Imagine that, me bumping into you here on this corner, where in the past we spent so much time waiting for the lights to change. You didn't bump into me. We made a time to meet so I could give you your mail. Why do you need to turn a fact into fiction? Polite conversation. And by the way, why this corner and not the usual? Oh, I say, knowing exactly what she is talking about. I don't go there anymore. My tone implies that whatever happened there was so bad, I haven't shaken it off. What do you mean you don't go there anymore? That was your place. You, you went there every day. It was, it was like a religious event. I, I got into a fight with the guy. A f- you, a f- you don't fight with anyone. What was it about? Who was next in line? And so just like that, you stopped going? I did. He let someone cut the line, so I stopped going. I wanted to show myself that I can be definitive, that I can stick to something. You seem upset. Well, it's a little frightening. The idea of you, this, this little hamantaschen, getting into a fight. <sighs> I'm, I'm sorry if that sounded anti-Semitic. 
When one Jew insults another, it's not anti-Semitism. It's self-hatred. Half Jew, I say, as if it makes it better or worse. I, I just can't imagine you getting into a fight. Who was the guy that thought he was in front of you? No, a woman with a stroller. Her stroller was in front of me, but she wasn't. She wasn't even with the stroller, nowhere near. She was going up and down, looking in the cases, and I was standing there, stuck, trapped, trying to entertain the inhabitant. You mean the baby? I mean the inhabitant, a blob of flesh with an enormous bobblehead. Babies have big heads. It didn't move, but its eyes kept rolling around trying to get a read on me. It was sucking its bottle, totally self-satisfied. Like everything in life came so easily, so naturally, it made me crazy. You were jealous of the baby's contentment? His eyes were enormous, like, like the heads of octopi. Really? It felt that way. And then what? Who's next? The guy called out. Uh, I am, I said, raising my hand. I'm next. I'll have a half a pound of Nova. The woman with the baby says, from the other side of the room. The guy looks at her, half pound? I would do more, she says, but it's so expensive. Um, it's not your turn, I say. You're not next. She doesn't even look at me. It's not all about you, I say. I may or may not have added another word, a word that, a word that would not be a good word. I, I can't remember if I said it out loud or just in my head. What was the word? The B word. Hmm. Well, at least it wasn't the C word. The guy just looks at me. Maybe it was the word. Maybe, maybe I actually said the word. I have no idea. Anything else? The guy says to her as he's wrapping the fish. Is the macaroni salad housemade? She asks. Then I lost it. <laughs> um, her stroller is parked here, parked and unattended. That does not equal a place in line. It's a fire hazard, I shouted. Foul ball on the six and ten. She stares at me. Oh my God, she says. Will you just stop? Her voice is more grating than horseradish on a blade. And now the guy behind the counter has something on his finger, something kind of yellow and shiny. He leans forward and like magic, the octopi pulls his bottle out of his mouth and the thick finger goes in. A little something for the baby. What was that? The woman screams, still on the other side of the store. Oh, butter, the guy says. My mother used to give it to me like that, a little bit on her finger, she said. I'm gonna butter you up. <laughs> Am I milking too much? Is it organic? <laughs> the woman asks, panicked. Are your hands clean? Big man wipes his hands on his apron. It's New York, he says. Everyone in the store is now staring. I turn quickly and try to get out of there. My shoe gets hooked on the stroller because, of course, it's not a regular stroller. It's a massive thing, a, a stroller the size of a Buick. And it's, it's been all pimped out. It has enormous tires, like it's also a dirt bike. And my foot gets stuck in the hole of this fucking all-terrain tire. And I, I'm still trying to walk forward and everything is going haywired. All I want is to get out of there. And, the woman comes over and she's hitting me with the Nova all wrapped up and she's, 
She's telling me to stop touching her child, who of course I'm not touching, but the stroller is tipping over and it looks like I'm kicking it. But of course, I'm not kicking it. I'm just moving my foot back and forth, trying to get free. It was awful, beyond awful. Did the octopi fall out of the stroller? The octopi was fine. The stroller tipped, but he was entirely strapped in. He never knew what happened. The thing even had a roll bar. He never even let go of his bottle. Just clutched it the whole way over. It was amazing that no one was injured. I was injured. (laughs) Did something to my knee. Barely got out of there alive. Probably need physical therapy. Yeah, that might be the least of it. It just doesn't sound like you. You you don't really have what I'd call a temper. A yellow cab comes around the corner, cutting in too close. I bang on the hood with the handle of my umbrella. Buttfucker! I call out. Buttfucker? It's all I could think of. I had the butter on my mind. Butter fucker. Anyway, it's nice we always agreed about children. We still have that in common, not liking children. I don't not like children. I'm a teacher. I teach children. That's a double negative. It's grammatically incorrect. And you didn't want any of your own? That's right. It's unusual, isn't it, for a woman not to want children? I don't know. I I expect a lot of women feel that way, but are loath to say anything. Goes against nature. Or maybe it doesn't. You know, maybe in nature, not every woman is a mother. Maybe some of them like to do other things. Like what? Run countries. (laughs) I wonder why men are so interested in the choices women make. We get nervous that when we get up to go take a leak or something, your people will take over. (laughs) We want to keep what's ours. You mean what you took from others, like land from Native Americans, people from Africa, money, power, all that stuff? I roll my eyes. You look like an octopi. Are you still meditating? I quit. Turns out I hate sitting still. But I did discover that I like hitting things. I started playing golf, but then did something to my back, so now I just punch things. I bought a bag, a punching bag, and when I punch it, things come out. What kind of things? Like feathers, stuffing? Feelings. (laughs) Feelings I've been sitting on for years. I slam my hand into the bag and thoughts pop into my head like revelations. Remember when the shrink asked what would happen if I wasn't angry anymore? If I could stand being happy? Is that why you left? You were too happy? I thought there were other things, problems, that you, you didn't want to deal with. I scowl at her. If you're interested in what it was like for me, I can say that I realized that you loved your friend Matt more than me. It's not true. I don't love Matt. I tolerate Matt. Same as you tolerate me. Some call that love. Anyway, (laughs) when my father died, you said you had to go to the ball game with Matt. Look, the man was dead. (laughs) It wasn't going to change anything. And the Yankees were playing the Red Sox. It was the final game. You can't lie about that. You can't go back and get that game later. You, I knew, would still be home on the sofa, feeling sad. So what did I really miss? Being with me in my time of need. I don't like conflict. You don't like not getting your way or acting like an asshole and then being held accountable. I don't like feeling guilty when I don't have to. (laughs) It's very selfish. 
It has nothing to do with you. That should be a comfort. But it's not. It's a selfish part. You didn't think about me, about what it would mean to me. Are you still talking about the ball game or bigger questions? I left. It was a matter of life and death. Like the baseball game? How much more serious could it get? There was always something, something more, something worse, something to look forward to, something larger than oneself. It's just too bad you're like this. I think this is what your therapist meant when, when she wanted to know if I'd find your anxiety overwhelming. At the time, I was surprised by the question. I, I hardly knew you, and I've come to understand that your anxiety is so important to you that you can't live without it. Who would I be without worry? We walk a little farther. You are too perfect. Oh, that is so you. You are blaming me for your problem? I am not perfect. To me, you are perfect. It drove me crazy. Your problems aren't about me. No. But I kept lowering my expectations. Of me? No, of, of myself. You were fine, happy, satisfied. Everything was going along as planned. Yeah, I thought it was. Exactly. Exactly what? You know what. In the end, it is you. You have an ability that I don't. You can shelter yourself. You can elude detection. You can hide your feelings. I can't. I can't protect myself. So I, I gave up on all that. And I'm, I'm hurling myself into all kinds of things. What kinds of things? Well, women, for one. Well, you should know better than to tell me that. We're friends. No, I'm your ex. It's too soon. <laughs> God, you are such an ass. I wouldn't smile if I were you. Why not? Because <laughs> you have poppy seeds in your teeth. I, I can't help but smile. I like it when you say I'm an ass. I was so good for so long, and now I just listen to you calling me an ass, telling me I have poppy seeds. It's great. You are an ass. <laughs> are you seeing anyone? Who would I see? Men, I assume. Although at your age, I've known a lot of women who switched. They say there were better pickings on the other side. The men of this age either didn't want a woman their own age or were bitter like Escarol. Came with too much baggage. I am not seeing anyone. I am enjoying my time alone. I'm spreading out on the bed. I'm leaving books and remotes and sometimes even snacks right there next to me. Uh, I can hear it right now, the crinkling little packages of oyster crackers. Sometimes I spend hours in bed just reading and eating. I make a cheese plate for myself. All the crumbs. Uh, like little sharp pebbles. Olives, cornichons. Fig paste. And rodents, rodents. Rodents could come into the bed looking for leftovers. A nice cold glass of Gruner, a good book. And then if I doze off, it's still all right. It's still there, right next to me. It doesn't move. Sometimes when I'm only half awake, I think it's you. <laughs> I, I'm a tray in the bed? A cheese board. Solid, unmoving. You always slept so soundly. I never understood how such a fundamentally disturbed person could sleep so well. <laughs> well, whatever is on my mind, I let out during the day, like off-gassing. Venting is what they call it. Well, then I am well-vented. No, you, you are toxic. 
Your venting spills into the air, and whoever is nearby is a secondhand smoker taking it on. A long silence passes. We used to have more in common. There was always something suspect about you, a little too Upper East Side. When Russ and daughters came uptown, it rekindled my hope. But life is not a knish. We went to couples therapy, but whether it was upstate, North Fork, or God forbid a weekend in the Hamptons, nothing was right for you. Black flies, blood-sucking ticks. I wanted an apartment in Paris. Is that so bad? I'm not a person who does well in nature. I thrive in a city. I need carbon monoxide in order to feel myself. A woman walking by overhears him and laughs. What else? Bruce and Emily. Bruce and Emily, the couple who also had no children. At a certain point, it comes down to that. People without children don't spend time with people with children. The landscape changes. What about Bruce and Emily? You didn't hear? Hear what? Kaput. Divorce? Dead. What are you talking about? Car accident upstate. When? Three weeks. How could you not know? No one told me. Who was driving? Oh, for only you would want to know that. <laughs> Seems natural. No one was driving. The car was on autopilot and it didn't see the deer leaping across the road. Three deer. The car hit them all like dominoes. God. Were there any survivors? The cat. He was in the back seat in his carrier. The carrier was in the rear wheel well, so Bruce took the brunt of the impact. What happens to the cat now? Well, he's gone to live with her sister. The lesbian? Yes. I bet she already... Yes, yes. <laughs> I say, anticipating what he's going to say. Cats. You can't make it up. No, you don't have to. A pause, and I reach into my bag. Before I forget... I immediately start making moves on the sidewalk, bobbing and weaving, trying to dance away. What are, what are you doing? It's like he's playing this weird game. Oh, he's one of those inflatable things outside of a car wash. When the arms blow this way and that way. Seriously? What are you doing? That's the question to be asking here. Are you serving me with papers? Suing me for all I haven't got. <laughs> I've got your mail. It's from your college alumni institution. They're always the last to know. I think it's a copy of the talk you gave in January, the copy you asked for. You like to have copies of everything you say. After all, you are the man who starts every day by writing his own obituary. It's not my obituary. It's my biography. Well... That's what you say now, but you used to call it something else. Well, I like to keep it fresh. It's all about the road not taken. I don't follow. Well, for example, I went with you and not that other woman. Joan? I met you both on the same day. Joan has a prosthetic leg. So? And is missing an arm. All right. You're being rude. And Joan couldn't speak. If you recall, we met at an event, a fundraiser for Joan, who had been hit by a bus. She was wearing a sign around her neck, I'm Joan. It wasn't a sign, it was a shirt. She was wearing a t-shirt that I made for her. It said, I'm Joan, I was hit by a bus. And she had little cards that she gave out with her good hand that said, thank you. Everything I say, you twist it and make me feel like an ass. I can't make you feel like an ass. That's your own thing. And by the way, Joan was a brilliant violinist. Uh, you, you just said was, not is. Did something happen to Joan? 
something more than getting hit by a bus and losing an arm and a leg and the power of speech? Is Joan all right? How can you ask that question? What do you mean? I'm concerned. You are nearly hysterical. A minute ago, you said it was Joan or me, and now you are so worried about Joan. It sounds as though you have regrets. It wasn't an either-or, Joan or you. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. I'm sorry I could not travel both. That's disgusting. What? A yellow wood? That's racist. I I don't get it. Joan is Chinese. (laughs) A yellow wood is a reference to her being Chinese. It's not my line. It's Robert Frost. You have a way of worming out of everything. And by the way, Joan is fine. She hooked up with her physical therapist, and they're running marathons. She got one of those blade foots and a robotic arm, and she's practically bionic. And she has her own cooking show. Everybody loves Joan. How how can she have a cooking show without speaking? Subtitles. Well, Joan is very nice. Not, Not edgy. Not complex. She was always measured and kind. How well did you know her? Well enough to describe her like a bottle of wine. I had the impression that you were meeting her for the first time at that benefit. Oh no. I met her before. We had a blind date a few weeks before the accident. I went to her concert and then out for a drink. What made it a blind date? She didn't know I was there. There were other people. So it was, it was more like an audition for a date? No, it was a date. She and I talked about it on the phone after. Um, sounds one-sided. She was very private. It was actually the only time we ever spoke. The accident happened soon after. Have you seen Joan since the accident, or perhaps traded texts? No. I met you, and that was all she wrote. Another taxi turns the corner a little too close, splashing his ankles. Get out of the street. You'd think that what happened to Joan would be sobering, would keep you out of traffic. What happened when the bus hit her? She was looking the other way. She didn't see it coming. Maybe it's better that way, blindsided. I don't think it's ever good. At the next corner, I hesitate. The phrase, images from possible futures flicker past, runs through my mind. What are you doing? I am sensing distraction. Lamenting what might have been. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I... I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. I wish I understood you. I used to think I did, and now I have no idea. It doesn't matter. It is starting to rain. At the next corner, I stop to open my umbrella. I turn to her. Goodbye, I say. Goodbye to the road not taken. Jane Kaczmarek and Tony Shalhoub performed Goodbye to the Road Not Taken by A.M. Holmes. I'm Meg Wallitzer. The title comes from the much-quoted poem by Robert Frost, which speaks to the one small decision that can make all the difference in a life. The precarious balance that Holmes achieves here reminds us that marriage is always both the road taken and the road not taken. We caught up with old friends Kaczmarek and Shalhoub backstage after their reading. I feel like we're on the newlywed game. Well, this is not the first time we've performed here. Is it the first time we've performed together, though? We were referred to as a literary duet. I think this is maybe my third time here. 
I've been here for quite a while. In fact, I just heard it was 33 times I've performed at Selected Shorts. I've got a lot of time on my hands, but I love spending it with Selected Shorts. Wow. I say this all the time. It's one of my favorite, favorite jobs. The experiences I have had here, I, I, one I did with George Saunders, who is an author I'm just in great awe of, is really one of the highlights of my career. And it was right here in Symphony Space. You were here. Yes. And then George Saunders came down to the bar and we were all drinking together and he was signing oh, books. Great. He was like the guy next door. It's funny because we don't get in awe of actors because that's what we do. But an author, somebody who has that ability. Someone with talent, you mean? Yeah. Yes. And who knows how to do rewrites. The stories are good. It's fun to prepare them. Yeah, and, create... and, and the money's so good. Oh, man. It's unbelievable. I tell you, doing public radio, we yeah. could retire. I got a boat. <laughs> the thing that made this so special, too, is that Jane and I have known each other for many, many years. We're in college together. In the early 70s, ago, 74, 75 or something. There's no need to actually, you know, like identify the, the decade. <laughs> and I'm the girl, and I'm doing that. Usually girls are more coy with age, aren't they? Or is that just a stereotype? There you are. We met each other at the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay. There were six of us in an acting class. Tony went on to Yale Drama School and was very encouraging. You could get in here. But these were the days where you'd write letters back and forth. You Actual could, handwritten letters. Yep. Things with stamps would arrive in a mailbox. And then we were together at the Yale Drama School. But then we were doing all these television shows. Um, I, the Paramount Studio, you did Wings at Paramount, right? I sure did. And we'd see each other on the set for shows we were working on and then at these award shows, which was really, really bizarre because we're just a couple of little badgers from Wisconsin. Here we are at Symphony Space. <laughs> so what's different about performing at Symphony Space? Well, uh, always when you're working in a live venue, there's a different kind of energy. It's this kind of exhilarating feeling. You're on a stage, there's people sitting there, they're responding in real time. That is a big difference from working in television and film, for sure. And in a play, of course, you rehearse you rehearse for four weeks. And you memorize. Weeks, and you memorize. This is really, a, you can prepare, but it's really, really moment to moment how they're responding to what you're doing and choices you're making. And also, with this kind of material, there's no director. So, so we can really just, you know, milk the crap out of Well, there was everything. one point you turned to me and said, um, am I milking this? And I was going to say, we're both from Wisconsin. We can milk it as much. <laughs> the dairy state. We can milk it as much as we want. Then we would have been into a whole other story. How do you feel about the performance you just gave? Well, I'm completely dependent on, you know, other people's opinion of me. I don't really have any idea. Would you like to hear my opinion of you? <laughs> they clapped. They laughed. It was a huge success as far as I'm but concerned. But it was a success. But we wouldn't, we wouldn't mind getting another crack at it, would we? Because that's what you do think about it, is what a director would have said if we did that, what we did today, they, and said, okay, let's t take it I back. I think a director probably would have said faster. I thought so, too. Yes. But then, but, but yeah, we that's were... the beauty of not having a director. We get to <laughs> indulge ourselves, you know? And there's nothing wrong with that. No, it was wonderful. It was a really wonderful afternoon. That was Jane Kaczmarek and Tony Shalhoub backstage at Symphony Space. I used to ask my writing students to write a scene of dialogue between two people, and the class had to guess their relationship. You don't need a lot of details to actually get it right. I feel I know A.M. Holmes's two characters just the way, even after such a long time and all that animosity, they still know each other. So, three stories about shifts in identity and the way we change when the things that define us change. We're young until some significant event makes us grow up fast. We live in one body until we become aware that it's the wrong one. We commit to a relationship and then are left sifting through the debris when it blows up. These life passages are the natural territory of fiction, and when we embrace them, our own identities change. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our mix engineer for this episode was Dennis Jacobson. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the Howard Gilman Foundation, 
the Schubert Foundation, the Blanchett Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achelis and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is also made possible with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for New Initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members, who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. 